on, everybody get set, let's go. It's the next episode. It's the Premium Pete Show. News, interviews, all of the info. Listen up, it's the Premium Pete Show. If you want to scoop in the low, down low. Listen to the show, cause Milk said so. Fuck what you heard, better act like you know. Miss Lissa knows. It's the Premium Pete Show. Internets, welcome back to another episode of the Premium Pete Show. Listen, I think Miss Lissa knows uh, has been... Um, kept in puerto rico i don't know where she is i think she missed a flight but hopefully we get in touch with her and we find out i may put an sos out to the puerto ricans out there and let them know listen stop fucking around release her arena and bring her back but uh you know she'll be back soon and uh we'll see you then internets listen um i'm excited this has been a long time making my man has been uh we've been talking for a while to make this happen um i've always been just a a, a pure fan of his journey but more importantly i've been um appreciated of how much he's um, shown love to me over the years. Listen, Internet, I want to welcome my friend, Mr. Ed Woods, to the show. <laughs> Ed, listen, right off the bat, first of all, I never had so many lawyer friends at a later age in life. When, when I was young, I had lawyer friends, I was in trouble. Mm-hmm. The, I'm, I'm going on a streak of bringing on lawyers on this show, you know? So, you know, now I have another lawyer on the show. Okay, yeah. So I know if I ever get in trouble, I'm good. You know, not only for criminal, just even even brand-wise. But right off the bat... Lawyers run the world, baby. I mean, I guess so. Right off the bat, I want to know... I remember you saying that when you were young, right? Mm-hmm. There's a reason why you wanted to be a lawyer. Do you remember that? Uh, Yeah. It's just, now it's expanded because, you know, as you start to reflect back, and I'm working on a memoir, so I was like... You know, you start to think of new, different things that came into your life. But part of it started when I was very young. Uh, my godmother um, and my mother, I used to talk a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people would say, you know, tell him to be quiet, be quiet. And mother would say, listen, let him talk. He's going to make a li- He might make a living like that one day. But, um, you know, it was really um, a, a guy who was older. He was from Jamaica. Um Worked in my father's cab stand, and he would say, you know, he always say, um, um, counselor. He called me counselor. Uh, he'd say, um, you know, you got to emancipate your mind from mental slavery. But I just actually, you know, kind of embodied that. And I remember going to school one day, and the assignment was, you know, pick a, 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 to- a, a profession. And they gave us a list of all these different jobs. So I took the list home. I looked at the first thing, the highest paid salary was for... A, uh, a doctor, doctor. exactly, yeah. and and I was like, "There's no way in hell I'm doing anything." Because you didn't fuck with blood. I don't mess with blood, so okay. I was like, "I'm not doing that." There's no way in hell. And the next one was an attorney, a lawyer, attorney slash attorney. So I was like, "You know what? I'm doing this one." So it was really the, a money thing, and then I always like to talk. So it kind of the two and two, and now that I think back, all kind of combined from it. And then constantly hearing people say he's going to be a lawyer. So I just decided from second grade on I was going to be a lawyer, and I never changed that, no matter what I did in life. You know, you know, it's funny because people will become something, right? Mm-hmm. But it takes people don't see how long the process takes. Meaning, like, okay, you said you wanted to be a lawyer, but throughout all those years, was there ever a point where you were like, "Fuck, man, th- this is tough"? Because being a lawyer, I'm sure, it wasn't easy, right? Um, no, it wasn't. Well, becoming a lawyer, I'm saying. No, it wasn't. It, it, becoming a lawyer was not easy. There wasn't any lawyers in my family at the time. I don't think there was anybody who had a four-year college degree. I mean, since then, you know, my family has grown. So, you know, cousins and everything. I just had, you know, great um, gift to hear that um, one of my little cousins just became a scientist. Mm. So it's like, you know, you see 
you know, the, the family tree expanded. But at the time I was coming up, there was no lawyers. I don't think there's still no lawyers in my family. So I didn't know any lawyers. I didn't know what lawyers did, just maybe watching TV. But I just knew that it was going to be a process. But, you know, it was something I was I didn't worry about because I knew that was far off the to the end of my journey. See, I've always looked at like, you know, everything that I ever did, and I learned this kind of from my mother and father, really my father, but the life, because he used to drove cabs, so everything was, everything's like a highway, and you're in a certain lane. So you basically have to look at it that way. You're not going to get to the end of that road it's from the jump start. So there's going to be a whole journey that you got to take to get to the place you're going. But at least I had a goal that was set that was going to end at some point where I would end up at. Yeah, no, you know, it's funny because you think about it. Sometimes people have, you know, ideas in their mind from a young age of what they want to be. And then sometimes things just change. Or they get like, you know, maybe this is too hard or they get bored of it or they see something else. Because keep in mind, you were young. Mm-hmm. So you could have just seen something else later on in life that was more intriguing. Absolutely. I mean, I went through stages. You know, at one point I was like, okay, I'm, I'm pursuing my rap career. Put out oh, a really? record. Really? Mr. Hey, Woods, with Mr. Uh, Woods spent bars. Yeah, I don't. I can't do it no more. I lost the the, the, the edge. <laughs> but I was a beast. I mean, I put out a record in '86, so I was always in the music, mm-hmm. and and music was a part of my life. So, like, I grew up in a household where my father communicated with my mother through music. What what nationality was was your father? They all, you know, Black American okay. from the South. My mother's from Alabama. My father's from Tennessee. I spent my summers in the South, so I had the the Southern culture of being out in the South. You know, I'm talking about deep South, dirt roads. You know, pigs couldn't roast it in the ground. That kind of thing. Damn. Moonshine, hogmog. Yeah, it, you know, whatever. It was all. It was all. You know, ribs. You know, but that kind of culture with blues and jazz and and listening to all the greats that came up out of that that era. And then coming back to New York and being in New York for the school year and, you know, basically being around the, the, when I was at the beginning when rap started. I mean, my sister's seven years older than me. So she was listening to, you know, that kind of end of the disco era and right when the you know, rap music was starting. So it was like I got to be a, appreciative at a young age to be listening to her records sure. and things that she had. So I was around music all my life. Crazy, because usually it's like the bro- the older brother, and for you it was the older sister. I had an older brother too, but my brother was a little little different, you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> he, was not, he was just a little different. He liked, he was into like, we didn't have video games back. He was into the comic book thing and okay. whatever, whatever. But my sister, you know, she went to Andrew Jackson High School, which is, you know, Jackson and Queens sure. is is like, that's, that was the Now mecca. you grew up in Queens, you're born and raised in Queens, right? Jamaica, Queens, Farmer Boulevard. Listen, shouts to Queens. I mean, I'm a Brooklyn kid. I really only fuck with Queens when it's Brooklyn Queens Day. But, yeah, you know, but you Brooklyn. come to Queens to do that because yeah. that's flesh and metal park. So, no, but listen, you said that you went away for the summer. Yeah. So when during the school year, right, mm-hmm. is, did mom and dad live together? Up until I was about 15. Okay. But you know, my father moved down the block. You know what I mean? It wasn't like... Okay, okay. He yeah, just said, so I'm going to take this up. He was on the other yeah. side of Farmer's Boulevard and my mother was on the other side of Farmer's Boulevard. You know, I always say, and my mother always say, my father was a great father, but a horrible husband. Um, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, our family was still kind of close-knit. How was your relationship with him? Well, my father, yeah. well, he passed away when I was 66, but my father was like, I ran with him like that was like, you know, since I was a kid, you know, I got pictures of him, him and I in suits. You know, I would go to the racetrack with him. I used to run the car games, like as far as serving drinks, um, food. You know, they do the fried chicken sure. on the car games. We had a, a car game. We used to go. So pops off. was a gambler. 
gambler and you know he was just in the mix he had he was a see what i always try to explain to people about you know if people say i'm from the street whatever you know they give that identification to it but the street doesn't necessarily mean that you you know somebody who was in the criminal criminal activity because there were guys who were in the criminal stuff and doing that then you had guys that were blue collar guys you had people who gamble people who did the numbers but we all lived in the same community so therefore you have the experience of being a part of the street but not having to do anything that's in a, in a criminal space sure so you know i was around all of that but you know it was one big big happy family at the time end of the day into that crack era hit and it kind of changed but um and, and you got to realize the time i grew up in queens was we were like the 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 birth of that commercialization sure. of rap music. So you got LL ten blocks this way, Run DMC on Hollis Avenue, up another section. You go to Queens Village. You got um, uh, uh, Salt and Pepper. If you went over into Rosedale or in Elmar area, you had like Fat Boys. You had I mean uh, Q Tip and them on Linden Boulevard, sure. and it's. So many kids in the neighborhood. Everybody doesn't birth, know each the, other. The birth of that, of, but it's of all right there. Damon, John, and Fubu, and all calling them. They were in one block. So if you were two or three years older, you might not have known each other. But we all attended the same park jams. We all were part of the same thing. You know, Mikey D was like a incredible, you know, battle artist back then, right? So the park jam thing was incredible. You know, we go out and in the parks, and it, it was different. We had the park jams, and then you had the the block parties where they set up on both sides of the street. One side of the block is one crew of, um, of DJs and MCs on the other corner, and they battling back and forth. So it was part of this whole culture that you were living in. And, you know, I think that's what's missed today when you think about, when we'll get into that, but when you miss it, when you think about what's going on in hip-hop right now, you don't have that 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 kind of, like, energy that was going on because everybody was just having fun doing it. Yeah. You think it was more of a business now? It's more of a business, and 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 I think that, you know, this was something where, you know, people would just set up speakers. So, like, I had a speaker, and I remember this, and the older cats would come get my speaker when they was going to, because they put a bunch of speakers together. They plug up into the light post, get the lights going, the electric sure. going. Next thing you know, that particular night, New Park, everybody's in the park. You know what I mean? So... Um, you know, but everybody was kind of a part of it, whether it was young kids or whether you were older. And, you know, it was just a different time. It was a different time. And we didn't have, we weren't there. We didn't have the distractions. So there was no cable. There was no cell phone. When you left the house, if you didn't know where the hell somebody was going to be at, sure. you couldn't find them. It, it, it was impossible. That yeah. was, that was a, a very hard game of manhunt. Yeah. Yo, let me ask you, you, you grow up, you got your pops. You seem, you seem like you're close with your pops, Yeah. you know, hanging out with him. Um, what would you say help you stay away from the street shit that help you stay like become a lawyer? Because I'll be honest with you, I asked this even to Kenneth Montgomery, mm -hmm. who was on a couple of episodes ago. How did you not fall into the street shit and get in trouble? Because it's very easy back then. Oh know? yeah, yeah. I mean, we any on any given moment you could have had a situation. I mean, mm -hmm. I had a kid pull a gun on me when I was sixteen years or fifteen years old. At a house party. We get into it in the basement. You know, it gets to step outside. We go outside. Everybody's in a circle. And he pulls the gun out. And my guy snatches the gun out of his hand. So the gun doesn't go off. But it just, you know, those kind of things could have happened. So those, you see these incidents now. 
with kids, you know, they get jumped and whatever. You didn't have cameras, so you didn't see the type of things that went on. You had that type of stuff going on all the time. But what the difference is, my father gave me a means to make money. Mm. So a lot of cats that were doing things back then, they were really just trying to eat. Like, you know, you know, if you had my client, Corey Pegues on here, he told you he yep. started because he was wearing worn out shoes and, and he was just like in the street because like, yo, I'm not going to go to school and look dusty every day and you competing trying to get girls and one kid got money and another one doesn't. So my father put me to work when I was young. He he owned the He owned cab. the car, so Eddie the was car, car service. Okay, yeah. And anybody from Queens knows that cab stand to this day. And they some of them still remember the phone number. So you started working in there. How, how I was, started how? working. I did First of all, I did. I started cleaning the toilets. Really? Right, yeah. He had me doing that since I was like seven. And I hated it. What and do you then, mean? He just told you to clean the toilets? You got to clean the toilets. And these nasty cab drivers, they in there, you know, not... You know, just going all over the floor and everything. But I was that was my job to keep the toilets clean. Oh. Then I switched to dispatching, which is first answering the phone. So back then you call for a cab in the neighborhood. Somebody got to answer the phone. Then they kicked the call out to the drivers. Then I started working at the desk where I'm actually dispatching. And then back then we had this policy. We go anywhere, anytime. So once the. The drug game hit heavy and started getting heavy in like 85. Yo, these dudes, we would go anywhere. We'd drive them to, you know, to the city, Harlem, wherever, Bronx, because at the end of the day, there's, they can get in the car and drive. You drive them somewhere. If they were picking up something, drugs or whatever, they got deniability. They say it ain't theirs. They said family sure, was sure. in the cars under the thing. And I'm the driver. And I used to get people get in my car and be like looking over the top and be like, yo, who is this? They're like, you ain't old enough to drive. And I'm like, yeah, I am. How, how old were you? 16 when I started driving cab. Really? Yeah. I, I always had a permit. How, and, how long did you uh, work that for? I worked it um, uh, till I went to school. Then I came. I would come home in the summer for a couple of weeks. And I used to work nights. So I could, that's when you got the most money. Sure, sure. So I would work nights and, you know, load up, you know, make, I can make six, seven, eight hundred dollars a day and then, you know, pile that up and then go back down to, I went to Hampton University. I just go right back down to school. You know, well, you, you know, you said something and um, I want to touch back on that pause, but I, I want to touch on, you said that you went in the school, in the summer you went to uh, down south. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I remember one time RZA. When we were on the uh, Combat Jack show, Rizza was saying that his uncle lived in, like, Florida. And when he was able to get off of Staten Island for the summer and go to Florida, that really changed his perspective and his mindset to that he could do anything because he saw more than the block, you know? Did that, going away from the South, I mean, yeah, did that do the, something for you, getting south, that away from Queens? Yeah, South was, was, was like, you know... It, that was an experience. It was a three, it was like a three or four week run that we would do. And back then you drive. You know, I didn't get on a plane until I was in college. So we used to drive. Why is that? Yeah, no money really yeah. for that. You know, we, yeah. everywhere we drove, we sure. drove straight through. We do two days. Sure. You don't want to stop nowhere. So you, you basically two, three car loads of, of family. We go down. We switch. They switch drivers. And, you know, you carry your spam and your cheese and crackers and fried chicken in the car and you go <laughs> straight through. But, um. We did all that, but when you're down there, you're in the, you're in the country, and and back then, you know, New York was 
really like it, it was a big deal for a New Yorker to come to the South. This sure. was for the music change. So when you showed up, New York was like, yo, you the you know, you the man. You show up, all the kids, it's like, oh, they want to know about New York and the buildings and whatever. But you got a sense to see how they moved. And they actually moved like hard work. I learned how to wash a car by my cousins in the South because wow. they would wash a car all damn day. And then and then we just ride it for two or three hours. You know, like, you know what I mean? Nice. And I was like, that was the big thing of the day. Where everybody's at the car wash, then we take a ride. And I'm like, you know, and, and throw beer out the window at, or the whole time we was driving around. What about that? What about that attitudes? Meaning like growing up in New York, Queens, you yeah. know, even from what I've seen at a later, you know, later in my life. Being a Brooklyn kid, you know, like always like me mugging hard rock, you know, thinking people are going to, you know, like having you just having your guard up and ready. Yeah. When I went down to the South for the first time, this was, uh, you know, maybe in Texas or Atlanta, I realized that Southern hospitality. Did you realize the difference of people's attitudes versus Queens? Yeah, absolutely. And then you got to realize my father had a huge family and my mother, 11 brothers and sisters on both sides. So when we went down there, the cousin game was crazy. It's like mm-hmm. one fa- one of my uncles had 17 kids. Damn. So you got all these kids running all over the damn place. But what happened is they they had moved to their respective cities. So they, they come back. Everybody would come home for the summer with their kids. And you got, you know, one that moved to Detroit, one that moved to Chicago. One. So when we all get together, we're learning about each other. But definitely the hospitality was there. But the thing I did learn is the... You learn to, to like actually to knuckle up with your game because them country boys like they were strong, like you know what I'm saying because they out in the pitching watermelons and doing sure. whatever. So yeah, so the whole you would come back with a whole new attitude because the, even though they was country in their own way, they tear you up if sure, you get in sure, a fight sure. with them if you didn't know Hit what you, you was with doing. a raccoon right in the yeah, they head. just Bomb. because they used to doing things differently. Yeah. But I, I loved it. I loved the experience. But you know what I want to point was is that the driving a cab thing is really what got me my lawyer skills. And I use them. Why do you say that for? Because I always felt like when I drove a cab, I had, I picked up, it's like my, my, I had these antennas that had to go up. You had to make decisions in a cab. It wasn't like a glass window in front of you sitting in a car. Somebody gets in the car and you have to figure out from the moment they get in your car whether one they're gonna make me drive all day around, not pay me, rob me at some particular point, um, you know, run some kind of scam, and next thing you in the middle of it. Mm. So you had to understand how to maneuver in the street. So, like for instance, I'll give you a perfect example. Somebody, I go to pick somebody up. They call from an address. If I don't see them physically walk out of the house, I would keep going. Because they could have just called from that house and act like they lived there. Sure. You got a comfortability factor once they get in the car. And next thing you know, you're getting stuck up somewhere. Or the worst, sometimes the worst customers was the little grannies, the little grandmothers. Mm. They get in the car, but they ride all day. And then they tell you, you know, my son, you know, Raheem is going to pay you. Now, Raheem ain't paying me nothing. Now, I'm riding the road with this woman all day, and I, she's like, you can find Raheem on Linden and whatever. So I'm rolling this one. I done wasted my whole day, and she doesn't pay me at all. So you had all types of things that was going on. And another thing I learned that my father taught me is always treat people with respect. And I learned that from being around a cab stand because we used to have a guy that but why, was— st- Why do you think he says that? Because he said the same individual that might be going through something— could potentially save your life 
and put you in a or, and put you in a better position and you don't know where and you're going to see that person in that situation. So we used to have a guy that used to steal our, our CBs at night. He'd jump in the cars in the middle of the night, take them and sell them. We knew he was stealing the CD, CBs, the little radios that sure, you had to sure. use. And then my father would let him sweep up and then pay him a couple of days later in front of the cab stand. I'm like, and I'm pissed. I'm like, why are you paying him? You know, you, he stole the, the, he's like, listen, let me explain something to you. The one or two radios he stole, me treating him right, he can be the same guy when your mother's walking down the street coming from the bus stop from work that won't hit her in the head with a brick or take something from her because he knows that there's a relationship. He's just on, he's on drugs. So he's got to treat him with a certain level of respect no matter who he is. Mm. And it, it, he's a potentially save your life. No, no, no. I, I, listen, I, I always say, you know, the message is the most important thing. You never, never, never only worry about the messages. Sometimes people see, like, when I was away, I learned stuff from crackheads. Yeah. Like, like and I, I would say, like, yo, where, where'd you go wrong? And they would tell me where they went. The gems you could find from somebody doesn't necessarily have to be the most appealing person that you could think. You know, like people think people in a suit, you know, just because they're in a suit mean that they're going to get exactly, you know what I mean? You can they get, got no damn common sense. Like, my father's common sense was so amazing to me. He would do things like tell me stories. He would say, listen, he, he told me a story. A guy ran up on him one night. He pulled out on trying to rob him, right? He turns around and tells him, yo... I'm getting ready to go do the same thing. I got a, a, a car. There's a car game going on on Sutton in 115th. I'm on my way over there. Why don't you come over there with me and we go get this money over here? And the cat went for it. Mm. And he talked himself out of the situation and he just dipped off once he got a, you know able to split. So you have to put yourself in the shoes of how do you think on your feet? And that's what a lot of, you know, times I think some people are missing. And that becomes very effective in your negotiation skills, how to get up from the table, what to do, how to respond. You could tell a lot from the way a person moves, the way they, I pay attention to body language. I always tell people, listen, you walk in a room, right? You walk into a, a, a meeting. There's a glass window that's facing outside. What side of the table do you sit on if you're trying to make a deal with somebody? Right. They say, well, I face, you know, so I'm looking at them and I'm uh, and I'm faced where the sun's not in my face. So I, whatever, whatever. But I said the sun is in their face. Mm. You want them to focus on your mouth and looking at you. So you take the blank. You you look at let them look at you and let the sun hit your face. But at least they can see you know, the sun. You don't want the sun blocking them. You want them focused in on what you're saying. So you have to use your body. Your messaging all in your body and all in your positioning and anything that you do. You know, later on in life, I mean, as being an entertainment lawyer, I mean, mm -hmm. amongst many other things, you know, also becoming, you know, uh, um, you know, doing TV shows and doing a book and and, do, and helping people build their brand, regardless of it, we'll get to that. But being an entertainment attorney, when you started doing deals and, you know, doing with Diddy or Usher or, 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 or um, Jay or anything that you've dealt with over the years, what was something that you took from back then, especially, in, you know, working with the cab that you used or realized, like, man, this, I've learned this from back in the day that well, you kept from, you know what I mean? Something that you something that you brought with you from your childhood. Well, one of the things that I always use, and this is across the board, and this is how I identify clients that I know are going to be stars. I always think back to that one kid when I grew up 
in school, in the neighborhood, and I tell everybody to do this. There's always that one person that outdid everything you did in life. Like you go and he, he shoots, plays better basketball than you. He always gets the girl. Everybody got that person. Sure. They can, and they think about it, they can remember it. I said, think back to that person. And that's the individual that you want to spot when you see whether they're a star or not. Whoever commands that room and has that kind of mystery. So there was this kid I grew up with. I swear it didn't matter. If I wanted a girl, I can get any girl I wanted. I was a smooth looking cat. But did everything that I wanted that was the best thing I wanted, this dude had it. Mm. And I just couldn't beat him in anything, grades, anything. He beat me at everything. I come in second. But it, it, it inspired me to go, when I start to reflect back, I say, who's that person and do they have that factor? And, and then also the way to carve a deal. I'll tell you a funny deal I did. One of the best funny, one of the best deals I did. And, it's, and I use my skill set of how to change the dynamics to get it done. I'm representing um, Black Hand. Um, shout out to Chaz Williams. So, uh, from you know, you've seen him on American Gangster. Yeah. We went out to L.A., to basically secure the rights to do a film for the black gangster, the Donald Goins books. So we get out there and we sit with the publisher, old cat, he comes out and he's giving us all this whole thing about how much money he wants to do to, you know, for the rights. So we go out the room, come up with the idea. I say, you know what? We don't need the, we don't need the movie right now. Let's just go back in and ask for the artwork from the cover of the book and then we're going to put it out as the soundtrack to the movie so he was like never heard of that before he was like for low money he was like okay yeah you can use the cover of the artwork and we put out an album with dmx ja rule jay-z mm. 50 cent all of them on it classic album with the movie coming which the movie never came but we used the soundtrack and we had the original artwork from the book as it and that's just thinking outside of the box mm. you know not settling for well hey okay we're gonna spend a hundred and something thousand four hundred thousand dollars on rights for a movie that we gotta still go make it nah we're gonna basically flip this deal get to what we need to get done and put this album out and it became a classic you know you said uh one time and quote me if i'm wrong but you said anything that is not nailed down is mine and anything that I can pry loose is not nailed down. Mm -hmm. Explain that a little further. Uh, well, it, that's a a, a, a quote um, that they use from a, a, a road, uh, a legendary um, railroad baron used. Mm -hmm. um, it's the find under John Henry. But basically, what it's saying is that you, no matter if a di it's basically you 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 going to the extent that you're going to basically go out there. And with all your drive to win, but you're going to take also what you can take. And if it's not, if you can get it loose, then you actually going to go after that, too. So you're, you're taking it a little further than just I'm going to go out and make a deal or whatever or close this particular matter. I'm going after every bit piece of business that I can get. If it's if it's if it's not closed, locked down and if it's locked down, but I can pry it loose, then it was never really closed. So that's why I always say if you're going to close a deal. Make sure you, you close it. Nowadays, it's wires, but make sure the check comes in, the <laughs> check sure, clears. Make sure the wire Yeah, in. everything's cleared before you start celebrating and high-fiving and patting asses in the ends before you get in the end zone. 
Now, let me ask you, uh, what do you think about 360 deals today? I mean, they are what they are. I mean, 360 deals, just you know, for um, those that don't really know what they are, is basically the opportunity for the record companies to share in revenue, um, different buckets of income, when at the offset of when, when the, the music business was declining, they felt like, okay, we're funding these artists um, to go out. They're putting out their records, radio, we're spending money marketing, all these things, and they're going out doing shows. They're getting book deals. They're getting film deals, television. Sure. But we're making them stars. So this whole thing of 360 deals actually came about because of that. Now, the difference is that the policing of a 360 deal doesn't... I've yet to see a record company sue artists for not paying them because they can't police it, especially on a certain level. Now, what you find is where the 360 deals did work is on the massive level like the Hannah Montanas, which has started from the Disney space. And then you saw deals that were happening with, you know, Live Nation building these deals with, you know, guys like Jay-Z and whatever. They share in different revenue streams and they pay them a shitload of money up front to be able to part of the touring. They finance the albums. They do whatever. But like the, these up and coming artists, not even just up and coming, mediocre, medium artists, successful artists. That, you know, I go out and do a walkthrough. I'm not cutting you a check. You know, and so it, so there's ways to get around it and say that you can carve the rights back so far back that they really don't get anything out of it. You know, so many people complain about 360 deals and say they're horrible. But I want to ask you a question. Going back to your early days of being an entertainment attorney, everyone always talks about, you know, that first deal, mm-hmm. where, you know, that that's always fucked up for people, mm-hmm. you know. Is is that is, is is has that really honestly become you know from somebody who is an entertainment lawyer is that really the business of how it works like for, like the a person's first deal is always fucked up? Well, I mean, it's about leverage. I mean, if you were coming to the table, you have you spending no money, right? You somebody's putting their money into you, financing you, putting clothes on you, sending you around, promoting and marketing and whatever. They're gonna get the lion's share of what comes in. That's just the, the 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 nature of any business. If I walked into your your block and said, "Hey, build me," I'm gonna build you a house and, and whatever. And you ain't paying for it. You're not gonna own it. So, the, what you have to understand is that yeah, these some of these deals, I carve back on deals because I have a lot of a lot of leverage. You know, I've been doing this long enough to basically, and I started when I was aggressive when I first started. Sure. I'm like, you know, we ain't doing that type of deal. Now, when you st- when you just started, was that when you and um, Combat Jack, well, Reggie Osei, started the uh, Osei and Woods uh, law firm? That was right after we left Louise West, who gave me my start, and I worked for her for about three months, and she got basically got rid of me. And me and um, why'd you get rid of you? Nah, she was just you know we great relationship, but she was ready to do something else, and I was extremely aggressive. Like I was one of them guys that came out of law school and was like, I'm taking over the world. And I came up with at a time when the other individuals, whether they were lawyers or doing other things, we're all the same age. So if you look at like Puff and Mark Pitts, who had, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's J. Cole and all those guys now, sure. and you know Wayne Barrows, all these guys out there, Harv Piers, we're all the same age. Derek Angeletti, yep, yep. shout out to my client. We all came up, it was like a D-dot. renaissance. D-Dot, you know, so it's like you came up in a period where everybody was young 
and aggressive in what they were doing. And we brought that approach to the the lawyer side. Because when I first started as a lawyer, they were like, man, you." I would show up in hoodies, Tim's, to a meeting. <laughs> and I'm like, so they started being like, the joke was, here come the hip-hop lawyers. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't, it wasn't like I didn't care. I was like, this is what we do. We do it a little differently sure. than what you guys do. Because you wearing the shiny shoes and, you know, the glossy shirts showing up because you've been representing Peebo, Bryson, and, you know, and Luther and those guys. We came in like, yo, we represent a new era, and this is a new way of how we're going to do business. You're not coming to the studio at 4 o'clock in the, to 4 o'clock in the morning and then hanging out to 6 o'clock in the morning at a club. I had no responsibilities, so it was like showtime. I was everywhere, and I did everything that, you know, the artists did. But I would have done it anyway because I was already in the mix hanging out. I just did what I did best, got in the mix, hung out, and did, you know, and and I'm in, I was in the studio. The problem came about when artists that you jump-started, because we would get them first. They came to us. Then it got to the point where this whole thing became, oh, once I get going, I need to go get a different type of attorney, the white attorney sure, that, sure. that can actually get me the bigger deals. So what happened is we got that whole, you know, you know, pushback of trying to snatch clients. We had a great... Um, retention rate though because I was super aggressive like you went after my clients I'm coming to your office you got to explain that mm. you know um, and I've had some stories like you know what that, do you mean you should just run up and uh... yeah I've had some stories I calmed down because it didn't make sense after a while I, you know as I've gotten older everybody grows I now this got... is when you were practicing by yourself now this is when me and Reggie were practicing <laughs> so what we, so he was like the the the, the good guy and you yeah, were the crazy yeah. guy. So I would get pissed like if I found out somebody was trying to take. Like one time, a client somebody tried to take took his client right after they closed the deal on the other side from us. So mm-hmm. I come in the office. I'm like, hey, what do you mean the guy has our client now? And he's like, well, you know, he decided to go. I said, no, 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 get your stuff. Let's go. We went down this office. I threw everything off his desk, flipped the, the damn thing over. It was just. But I, I, that was my way of expressing, and it was, you know, obvious unprofessional at the time. But that was just me having to grow. But at the same token, that's just the way I felt because it got to the point that I realized as long as I was delivering, they couldn't ban me from doing what I was doing. Mm, mm. You know, I wasn't physically putting my hands on people. But at the end of the day, it was you, you had just, to show yeah. some kind of, you know, I'm not taking it. I'm like, out of sucker. Yeah, but and you know, another thing is, it wasn't what I tried to explain to my clients. They, I was like, we have families too. We, you know, people having kids and trying to get going. You're helping somebody else's kids go to school. And the only reason they have this ability to do what they do is because you're giving them your talent. So what you ended up happening is exactly what I thought was going to happen is the deterioration of everything that was built up in our community being snatched as a culture again, and now it's controlled and owned by everybody else. That's why you have lack of black execs in the industry now. You got one black chairman in the industry right now, oh. which is Sylvia Rome. Mm. And she's the president of the company. The chairman was L.A. Reid, mm. who they just let go. or He just got stepped down. Mm. So here it went from in the 70s where you had 
black execs like Larkin Arnold and all these people who ran these companies. You had people who own their companies like Dick Griffey. These guys were actually putting out the whispers, you know, putting out, um, you know, uh, various artists. I mean, they were just killing them and they was developing their acts. They had marketing departments. They had promotion dollars. They whatever. They had black radio mm. money. And then what happened is once our music got so successful, hey, get that back. You know, this needs to come over here. The, in the indie promotion guys, they started spending more money with in the, on black music. So now all of a sudden, make that go to the pop department. So what you had is basically a, 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 a infiltration once again. And it goes from back to the beginning of time and that we we've allowed our, our culture to be snatched mm. and, 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 and our assets to be taken. And I'm and I'm and I'm and I'm the one to speak out on it because I don't care. They not nobody. You know, I don't live and die on what somebody else does and nobody else is paying my bills. I, I make my own money. So I'm just I'm just making this point that that's what always fueled me. From the moment I started in this business and I haven't changed with that kind of attitude because I always felt it was going to be a problem. But do you foresee it even in now in these days as you spoke? Do you foresee it ever changing? You know, do you see how could this, you know, be changed to where? I think it's, it's it, I, you know, I don't think I think it's it's something that in, internally that we have to deal with as a, as a community. To understand when you create something, you know, we used to have um, I remember growing up in my neighborhood, all the businesses in, in Queens were pretty much um, black owned. You know, we went to the tire shop was black owned and mechanics. And then once things started changing, everybody stopped using except for the two things they won't change is their their barbers and their, uh, and their salons. But now you. They almost changed that too with the nails. They got the nails out of the so 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 it, you know we've allowed it to happen. So potentially the way it works right now, fifty years from now, somebody told me this when I first started. Fifty years now, and they, I used to be like, nah, no way. You'll think that rap music was started by probably Eminem and mm. and Ice T mm. because. It's the way you paint the picture and you keep retelling the story. That's why it's so important for what you do and what other podcasters do and people who are creating content and programming to document these stories. I love the fact that the guys went back and started doing things with talent that started in this business, sure. even though they might not be, you know, who wants to put like this? I always say like this. They like argue with old timers all the time. I'm, I'm old enough that, my if my nine year old don't want to hang out with me, like when it comes to music, he went. I was my my father wasn't listening to hip hop, but you know, so you don't want to hang out with him like that. But at least we shared in 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 the same culture and community. We protected it. Sure. And 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 that's what we got to get back to. And and you could have put him on to something, and he could put you on to something. Like yeah, yeah yo, this uh, this is what I'm checking out, and you're like, yo, you got to check out this because to be honest with you, a lot of these kids don't realize that the samples come from now 90s hip hop. Yeah. You know, a lot of these newer songs now are being used by being sampled from 90s hip hop, which was sampled, which from, was sampled from 60s yeah, and 70s. Yeah. So you so, know, it's yeah. it's 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 evolving. You know, you know what I want to say with you know with the uh, combat and the Osei and Woods. How long? How long was that for? How long did Osei and Woods? Uh, uh, we lasted about maybe six years. Now, listen. 
a lot of people, um, you know, uh, talk about, you know, you guys together and being a powerhouse together and really mm-hmm. working together. You know, him maybe being him being the good cop, you being the bad cop, so to speak, or whatever. You know, just being somebody that went after it and, and worked with a lot of people. You know, it's funny, too, because I know sometimes, you know, like... Um, Combat will get a bad rep with where Nori will say, like, uh, the contract he did, that he jerked him. But I want to ask you, what were some of the, the good deals that you did and the good things that you did with people? Because I think that doesn't get brought to light a lot. Like, how many good things and how many deals you brokered for so many people you in combat? Well, I mean, we, we had a lot of clients. And don't get me wrong, not every deal goes right. Um, but I don't think... You know, I think a lot of times it's selective amnesia with deals. Sure. So, you know, people, you know, say, I I thought it said this and I should have said that. Um, but, we, you know, I, I represented Kelly Price from the beginning of her career. Um, and I've always been proud of that because I took with her. We started together on her first album and we put it together from soup to nuts and nobody thought it was going to win. And we did it right out of that small office and we took the world by storm. So when they started Deaf Soul, they built the whole brand around it. Then, you know, when I got her out of her Ron Isley deal, I had to actually file a suit against Ron Isley, who I was a fan of. And here I am sitting there and Ron Isley is crying in the in the conference room. And I'm like, I'm killing my whole relationship that ever could have with a, a guy I saw as like, you know, legendary icon. He's but like, call him he, Yeah, yeah, he was, he was, it was a horrible experience. But we did what we had to do. Um, did you Did you win that case? Kelly's been out. Yeah, she's, yeah, come on, I don't lose cases, I okay, win. Okay, okay, yeah. okay, Mr. Woods, okay. <laughs> Okay. Nah, so so but we represented a lot of people. I mean, like, you know, the Jay Z thing, um, I always use that as an example. It was a new client. I mean, it was a client that uh was already with um Louise West. When we left, she we took him he Reggie took him with him, so we had him as a client. And it was a great relationship. We did the Reasonable Doubt album. Sure. But and Jay and I still cool to this day, um, no issues. But um what happened was there's a lot of politics going on, and I learned a big lesson from that relationship. Never refer a client to someone that to bring on board that isn't in a position to make the decision-making on what happens with that client. So to give you an example, and I really don't care, I'm going to share this story, is that I actually referred him to a, a friend of ours who was a business who are you talking about? I'm talking, I referred him to a young lady who was a business account. Referred who? Um, Jay-Z and them. Okay. Yeah, because they were actually basically, you know, a firm that, I mean, a company was, and then they needed a professional sure. accountant firm to handle their cutting their deals. So I referred them, and, and, and I, so I take the blame for that. I referred him to the young lady, but what she did is she worked for John McNeely. John McNeely was a guy, and John McNeely, if you're listening, you, you, you should um, send me a check one day, is that John McNeely, I gave him to John McNeely, right, because she went through her. But what, what happened was I felt like he was undermining the relationship. So what happened is every time we close a deal, he would come behind and say, show up like after the deal and say something was wrong with this or something was wrong with that. So it constantly kind of deteriorated the relationship and it got to a point that you know they sat us down and was like hey we're gonna move on and they went on and did their own thing you're talking about jay-z yeah but you know what 
out of all that was said and done, if anything, if anybody can say a bad deal that Reggie cut that made no sense, it's still that deal that they did was for one album. Sure. That's the only reason they was able to do or go make a deal to do what they did with Rockefeller. It wasn't for 10 albums or seven albums or five. So no deal is going to be great in the beginning. And some of the best highly negotiated deals, the artists never make any money and never come out anyway. Mm. Some of the worst deals that start with a guy, and you, and so what happens is these deals are always renegotiated. Once the artist is in a leveraged position, it's like you can't force them to perform. So you either going to figure out a way to pay them to make them feel comfortable that they're moving forward and they're constantly, these terms are constantly being renegotiated every single time. What and To date, what is your best deal you feel you ever did? Best deal? Yeah. Now, I've done a lot because I've, I've helped a lot of people do sure. deals. So, like, you know, um, you know, I remember... Um, uh, shit. James McMillan, who's my guy, you know, he's doing well with uh, Machine Gun Kelly. Shout out to James McMillan. You know, I keep brought me in when he was first getting started. He used to work for me. He was getting started. And I helped him flip the eight ball and MJD deal that was like, you know, he was like, I came in and just destroyed these guys. And it was, you know, I did all of the back negotiations on the DMX label deals and stuff like mm. that. But I don't necessarily have a particular deal that I did because it's not necessarily a deal. I think it's more of a progression of what you've built on somebody's career. Mm. Like I felt like at the end of the day, you know, there's certain people that I help become stars mm. and help them. Ryan Leslie, for example, mm. you Why? know, I took Ryan to every single meeting you could imagine and nobody would wanted to mess with him because they always were like, he's a good producer. He'll never make it as an artist. And I was like, no, you don't understand. He's a star because I'm using the same factor of what I saw in this. What, who's that kid that everybody wants to be like? And he didn't care. This guy took him to a meeting in L.A. Reed's office and we were waiting in the lobby. He had brand new wood he had just set up in his lobby. And, and Ryan used to wear these dirty, rusty boots. And he was doing splits the whole time. So by the time they <laughs> came out to get us for the meeting, they had scuff marks all over his new wood. He just wanted to win. It was a certain passion that he wanted to win. And I, I managed him for five years. And I really put a lot of effort and time into making him, helping him to be who he was. He's always talented. Sure, genius. Sure, but, definitely. But um, I put a lot of time into it. And then, you know, my guys, you know, the Hitman producers, you know, was, was, was I mean, I enjoyed that experience. Yeah. Because every Stevie damn J. song... Yeah, it was D Dot, Nasheen, Nasheen, Ron Lawrence, yep. Young Lord, Mario. I mean, I'm basically every record coming out of Bad Boy. Every time they look up, they got to see me. It was, it was like you. Know, What's your relationship with Diddy? Um, you know, it, we've always had one of them kind of relationships. That's kind of like, you know, we've had some good times, a lot of bad times. Um, you know, I don't, you know, I don't wish anything ill will on him. You know, I wish him the best. Um, Are you getting like, any Ciroc sent to your door? Absolutely not. Okay. But, I, but, I, but I've done a lot. I've put it like this. I've done a lot um, more good and been more, I think, of a, uh, of a asset to helping him do certain things he did in life than I get credit for. Mm. You know, so, but I don't, I don't harbor on that because everybody got their thing. Why do you say that? 
um, because, you know, we because we were always at odds with each other, meaning like I'm protecting my guys and I'm not buckling under any circumstances. One thing, you know, I learned from an old time, he said your integrity. I mean, your talent can get you there, but your integrity will keep you there. Mm. And I, I keep my integrity intact. So my thing was like, you know, my artist was Cassie. I managed her. You know what I mean? He took her, dated her and then got her to terminate my contract. You know what I mean? And I could have went after them, but I was like, you know, she's a young girl and I'm looking out for her. And this is a girl I went through. I went through wars with and for her. But what made you, you, you just told us that before, you know, when you and uh, Reggie mm-hmm. had the, you know, law firm, that if someone took your client and you went over there and went crazy. Now you look at Diddy did this. Why would, why didn't you go after him? No, we used to have, we used to have it out. Like we, we almost got into it several times. On this particular thing was, it was the way it happened, and it was almost, it's kind of complicated. Because at the time, um, you know, who was a close friend of mine at the time, but in, who ended up being my wife, was working for him. Oh, okay. So it was a very uncomfortable situation for her being an employee to go at his juggler. Sure. Because under any other circumstances, I would have went, I would have went right at him. Sure. When's and the last time you've seen Diddy? I haven't seen him since um, face-to-face, maybe about a year ago, ran into him in a, um, at a thing that VH1 was doing. Yeah, that for... toothpick hanging way low when he seen you out of his mouth. Yeah, no, actually I saw him in a, in a, in a thing. We barely spoke because, you know, like I said, he it's, it's, a, it's a funny relationship. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? There's no, there's no, like you know continuing thing i don't call him he don't call me you know what i mean we don't have that kind of relationship and i don't and i'm not one to be pressing up on nobody's ass that got their own thing going on you know but at the end of the day i did a lot with him and yeah. for him too yeah and he, and he knows it yeah. he knows it hey listen sometimes the hard relationships you know you know some people don't admit what you know what was done but you know Behind the scenes, you know. Only you can know. And oh, yeah, he yeah, knows. yeah. Because the re- only reason he got Cassie was because of me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I really had every other label trying to do a deal with her. And he wanted her. And, he, you know, we talked. And he, he gave me the spill and why he wanted her over there. And it, I made it happen. You know, and that's when I was working for Tommy Matola. Mm. And the pushback was they didn't want to go there with her. They wanted to Man, go somewhere. Man, you got so many goddamn stories. Why didn't they want to go back? Why didn't they? Because we had other opportunities that wasn't going to tie up into that particular situation and get caught up in, you know, the, uh, what's I call it? Like, um, the, uh, you know, there's certain, this industry is built on a lot of fluff when you need something. But when they don't need you, then you're, you're, you're out of the pocket. You know what I mean? Isn't that life, though? That's you know, not, when you're hot, when you're hot, they need you. When, you, when you're not, they don't, they don't want to be bothered. Nah, but there's, there's a certain level of respect that people have that for individuals that I have, I have ongoing relationships with people that, you know, I don't need anything from them, but if they need something from me, I do something for them and they do something for me. It's not about that. You know, life is short, man. You have that, that, that you, you come in this world broke and you're going to die broke. Sure. So at the end of the day, people say, yeah, well, I ain't, I'm, I, I didn't come in this world broke. Yeah, you did. Your family had money. They gave it to you. And when you leave, you can't take it with you. So you, you're leaving broke. In and out broke. So it's what you do and <laughs> it's what you do in between those years is what what really paints who you are. And my thing is now is is really been focused on what my legacy will be. And I and I also want to say this because I always talk about my father. I don't really talk about my mother too much. 
Um, but my mother was actually the one, because of the way she raised me and exposed me to, she was like, you going to, I'm exposing to everything I can potentially, if, you know, afford. So we went to museums. We went to uh, black camp half the summer, white camp half the summer. Like she was like, she wanted me to understand other cultures, everything, so that I wasn't like walking into the world blind that I could actually deal with every type of situation and not feel like, you know, somebody has an upper hand on me and you making decisions differently. Is mom still around? Yeah, my mother's still here. Did you ever get a chance to tell her uh, how much of that? Oh, yeah, she's in. I just wrote a book. She's in the book. You hear me? Okay, look at mom. Okay. Anyway, you know what? Let's take a break. Listen, we've been we've been telling you've been telling so many fucking stories, man. I think we're on we're we're we're, we're in a court meeting over here. Now I got I, I got a lot of, I got a lot of. Listen, real I want to go into the Tommy Matola shit, man. You let's know? do it. But uh, let's take a break. Internet, listen. Get yourself a drink, maybe a Malta, maybe a Martinelli's apple juice, uh, whatever it is. Just you know what? Get yourself an L. Get yourself an L. Light that up. Get you, don't get yourself a clove. I, you know, I, don't get yourself a clove. Them things get on your clothes and stink. But internet, you listen to the Premium P Show. My man Ed Woods is here. We chopping it up. We'll be right back. Don't go nowhere. Cheer. What's up, guys? It's Ill Mind, music producer for the Stars. You already know what it is. You're checking out the Premium Pete Show, featuring Miss Lissa Knows. One of my favorite podcasts, man. This shit is amazing. All right. We out. Internet's and we're back sitting here with my man Ed Woods, the entertainment lawyer, <laughs> the uh, personality, the TV guy now. Listen, um, before we even get into that type of stuff, you mentioned Tommy Matola. How mm-hmm. was that work? Explain what you did there. Uh, well, actually, when Tommy was leaving Sony, um, he was starting a new company under Casablanca. And, you know, at the time, I had all these clients. I had about 100 and something clients. Who were some of them? Uh, the clients, yeah, uh, I, I, I mean, it's a who's who's list, man. I'm like, you know, um, I can't even like because it's timing. I'm like, who was I representing at the yeah. time? You know, it was the Ron Fest. I had all these guys, man. Yeah, you know, what I'm saying you got to remember, I'm the guy who we had Kanye West as a client, and I represented D Dot, and I convinced them to let. Kanye go as an artist because I said he would never be an artist. So everybody, really? Yeah, everybody makes mistakes. Okay. You know what I'm okay. saying? Listen, so, it's about owning up to some of your mistakes. Oh, yeah, no, no, you grow from them, you know. But what I did is um, uh, had a, uh, had, a uh, had a nice firm growing, had a bunch of lawyers. What I'm more proud of is the amount of lawyers that worked for me. Underneath because, you? Yeah. Because that you put on. Who are some of them? Uh, Jill Ramsey, who's now president of um, Wendy Williams Company. Nice. Who else? Uh, Nicole George, who's running Urban, uh, all of the Urgent Publishing at ASCAP. Nice. Uh, Indy Piper, who's um, second in charge of um, legal counsel at... Um, at um at uh uh what's the name um what's the name uh TV One okay um I mean I got lawyers who got their own firms you know everybody had a successful run even my assistant ended up being Deborah Lee's assistant you really? know what I mean? <laughs> yeah so you know I was like yo I'm putting them out everybody's doing well and and I feel like I gave a lot back you know what I mean and, you know I I was chairman of the Black Entertainment Sports and Lawyers Association. And on that board for 14 years. So I helped a lot of people. But um, we started with the first question was the Tommy Matola thing. So what happened was I was doing so many deals with him in a week that it was like I, every time you come in for a meeting, I'm showing up in the meeting. And he was like, yo, I, 
I keep seeing you here. Like, what's going on? So he just says, you know, do you want to, you know, I'd like to hire you. And, you know, big shout out to Bimmy. He endorsed it because uh, that's one of my clients. Um, and Corey Rooney, I went to junior high school with. Mm-hmm. So he's checking his, his resources and Corey Rooney endorsed it. And I went over there and started working for him. And within five or six days of working for him, I got wind from somebody running their mouth and not realizing that I'm listening that Usher was looking for a new manager. And um, I we, we sat down. I told Tommy about it. We sat down. We approached his mother, and we ended up co-managing him for the Confessions album. So that was my launch in the relationship with Tommy. And then we ran from that. I signed uh, Corey Guns when he was 16 years old, um, which was, you know, off of a videotape before anybody really got on him. Sure. So, you know, Peter and I set a deal, put it in motion, um, now you were on that TV show called what? Son of a Gun. Son of a Gun. Yeah, yeah. I remember you. Were, who was? Is that when you were going crazy? Yeah, with Nick Cannon. Yeah. What happened? Are you cool with Nick still? Well, actually, we 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 actually um, recently made up. We, I ran into him. It's funny. I went into a D dot now at a um at a uh, some event, and me, him, and Wesley Snipes. Right. Mm-hmm. So we we they put us in a private area before the thing starts like a little vip area so it's like we're the first ones that go in this room and all of a sudden they put nick cannon in there and i hadn't seen him since the what's the name so i just was like listen man uh i got this show i'm doing on money power and respect i want you to Um, come on was that on we tv yeah we tv i was like i want you to come on the show with me so we can discuss our issues so that's what we did and we did it on the show and combat did the interview and, you know, we, we worked everything out because before it was like, you know, we was really I was really hot with him. Like it wasn't like bullshit. Yeah, I remember I, that son of the gun. You were going crazy on. that. Nah, because they were they were undermining me like as if I'm like, you know, some flubber dub off the street. And like, you know, I'm not with that play play shit when it's like I'm building. Something. You mean as far as a lawyer? You know, they were as undermining a, yeah, you. They were undermining me. But then I was managing. I was managing Corey at the time. Right. You know what I'm saying? So. He tried to step in on the management, and I was like, no. You, you mean you managing? They blindsided me on television and get it on tape. So, And then they kept going at my juggler with it, and they did some really funny editing stuff. But be honest with you, one thing I liked about Nick is that we was able to put that behind us, and we cool with shit right now. Sure, I mean, that's how, that's how it should be. Yeah. You know, I don't need... Let me ask you something. What do you, what's the difference from a lawyer, right? What's the difference of a $50 lawyer an hour? Versus a five hundred hour, you know, an hour lawyer, and the reason why I ask that for is because if you think about it, all the same information is out there. So what I'm asking you is, what does a higher paid lawyer do that makes them worth their money than versus a guy that's making fifty dollars? Well, an hour? I, part of it is levels of experience. Most lawyers, you know, if you're just getting started, you might be billing out at two hundred dollars an hour, and as you rise in experience, you can go up three, four, five hundred dollars an hour. You got lawyers that charge seven fifty, eight hundred thousand dollars an hour in some of these big major firms for these major acquisitions that take place when you having like these corporate buyouts sure. and stuff. So you know, it just depends on the range. But I would say the fair number for most lawyers in the space of experience you know if they really do that they know what they're doing and whatever they're pretty much 400 500 hour lawyers that are out there but you know you 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 know 50 dollars ain't nobody charging that to do no entertainment unless they <laughs> unless they are paralegal yeah. or something you now, know what i mean now, now you spoke about money power and respect the tv show you mm-hmm. want on we tv did you negotiate that deal for what did you negotiate your own deal 
my own, did I own through for myself? Yeah. No, I'm not crazy. So who? So you you hire someone to do your own deal? Absolutely. No, I, the reason why I ask that for is because you always come off as a guy to me that can handle your own shit. Yeah, like I can't. But do you? It's like I, I don't know. Tell oh, it's, okay, yeah. let's use a doctor's example. You gonna you gonna operate on yourself? I mean, shit. It, it, depends I mean, where it is. <laughs> if it's no, on my it's nah. on my toe or my leg, yeah, and nah, I can reach nah, it. Come on. Now I always tell people, listen. It's like a, you know you do you. It's like I use medicine as examples all the time. You a doctor. You don't you don't diagnose yourself. So I might come up with all my deal points and whatever, but I throw it to my guy who does the whatever, and he basically papers it and gets it done. I'm going to read over my contract because I understand it, but I've always had my own my own attorney. Virgil Robertson, L.A., um, is, did all my deals, my employment deals and, and things like that when I was working for Tommy. But, you know, I, um, I don't—I um, I, I don't—I don't— think anybody should be doing their own contracts i respect that yeah. now let me ask some up-and-coming lawyers entertainment lawyers mm-hmm. any type of lawyers you know what's some advice that you have for them um one learn their craft mm. because you know i think the, the see you know they got a bad perception of what it takes to be an entertainment lawyer right now i see a lot of lawyers running around that want to get in the game and because of the internet and social media they feel like oh i'm in the mix and they don't. There's no level of experience on. It's there's more than just the law. You can read what you want to read. You know, I'm a professor, sure. so I teach a lot of students. I'm a professor at Howard Law School. So what are things I teach these young students that are coming out? I say, listen, when you go out in the real world, make sure you understand how to act and conduct yourself as a lawyer, and that includes understanding the, not just you know the, the terms of a deal. But do you understand all the other elements? Do you understand copyright law? Do you understand the business law terms? Do you understand trademark law? Do you understand employment law? Like, you, mm. you, know, you know, real issues that come into play. You can't be an effective negotiator unless you've actually spent time in that space. It, it's all about... It's all about um, information. Info, it's, it's not just information. If you're going to be a guy who negotiates or a woman who negotiates, you have to be someone who understands there's an art to negotiating. There's a way to get a deal done. And it's like... And, and a lot of times what lawyers do is they don't have the experience of understanding the business. So what they're doing is they're operating off of deal points that don't, make, that don't matter. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is you're killing a deal... I, I get. I can tell when a lawyer is a new lawyer. They send me a paperwork that's marked up. There's fifty thousand comments on it, and then they want to <laughs> argue about things that's never going to come to play. Yeah. And I like say, what? Listen, like what? It could be just arguing about, you know, the the. Uh, you know, I'm just. Uh, I don't. I'm trying to think of a a good example. Like, you know, somebody sends you something and they want to keep going over the accounting provision and this is this and this is. This. Listen. The music business is set up. The, the company pays you twice a month. You want to basically get audit rights. Boom. Let's move the hell on. Yeah. I don't want to talk about certain things that don't make sense. And then I used to do this trick um, that my professor in law school taught me. He said, you can always tell whether somebody read the contract. So I will take things in a contract and stick it in there just to see if they read it in the drafts. Mm. Be like Mickey Mouse. And put it in the miscellaneous section and put <laughs> Mickey Mouse, you know, has a, has a brown hat on today and stick it in, in, the, in, the, in the language where it's talking about New York law. 
and they and I and they don't look at it because they done skipped over all that Peter, and they send Peter, it back. And Peter Pan jumped over the bush. And I'm telling you, you'd be surprised how many people come. <laughs> I'm looking at this. I'm like, where's the comment on this? Yo, people, people, people don't read the fine print, man. They don't. Let me, let me ask you something. You're talking about lawyers, right? But how about this? Switching it around for a second. How many of your clients really understand their deals? Oh, my clients understand it. Okay, why? Because, because you explain to them. I explain it to them because the more informed they are, the easier it is for them to digest it. And also, it makes my job easier in the progression of time as we go through that they can actually, one, they learn not to make mistakes. I don't want them negotiating on their behalf, but I want them to understand it because they're actually the first one on the, on the, on the, on the, on the front line. You know, you get a gay guy, he goes out, and he, he's down in Miami. He meets somebody at a conference. They say, I want to offer you a publishing deal. And he starts running off at the mouth saying, yeah, I want this, I want that. That's not what they're going to do. I'm going to explain them how they're going to handle it. But they at least know what publishing is. I'll give you a good example. I will put two of my clients up against attorneys all day long, and I guarantee they out-negotiate them. And I got one attorney that we, we joke all the time, um, my man from um, Chaz from Blackhand, he litigates his own cases. Mm. You mm. know, he's that good at it, you know. But they've taken the time to learn it. D-Dot it tell you more about publishing than most lawyers know. Mm. And they don't understand the numbers. They don't understand the Copyright Act. They don't understand the Digital Millennium Act. They don't, you're talking about streaming income. If you don't have the information of what you're dealing with, okay, everybody's like, yeah, I want to get, you know, I'm supposed to get my streaming income. Do you understand who the players are right now? Do you understand YouTube has the largest share, but their their, their return on what they pay out is yeah, smaller like, yeah. because they're not collecting any money? Spotify getting 16%. Did you know that what Pandora's getting is about 10%? Deezer's getting about 2.6%. I read everything you can imagine True. that comes across my desk. And not only do I read that, I read philosophy. You know, I'm studying um, Archimedes right now. He said, let me stand. Give me the ground to stand on and I can shake the world. You know, I want to go into a room and kick my feet up and have a conversation that people look in there saying like, oh, my God. They're in awe because they don't understand. They ain't read nothing. And if you just sit time and, and spend some time reading and learning, another thing I give advice to is read a lot of autobiographies on the life stories of these artists because the stories are very cyclical. They, 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 it's a cycle that keeps happening over and over again. There's a book that I always recommend people to read. It's called um, Being Mr. S. And mm. it's about Frank Sinatra. The, the butler wrote it. Mm. And it's a great book. because it's butler, the, lin- really? the butler of Frank Sinatra. Wow. Wrote, but you're getting, what's the name of it again? Being Mr. S. But it's basically, you get his version of what Frank Sinatra was mm, like. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, that's, and that's the real deal version. Yeah. Let me ask you, uh, you went to Hampton, right? Yep. You graduated from Howard. Yep. So my question to you is, which is the real HU? Come on, man. That's a crazy Come question. Come on. I don't, I'm asking Hampton you. University, man. HU? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, let me say something. All the people ask me all the time, they get confused. They be like, yeah, you went to Howard. No, listen, I went to law school at Howard. I went to Hampton University because it's your college years that that kind of, you know, kind of camaraderie, balance and competitiveness things happen. In law school, you in there trying to learn the books. You ain't goofing. Our campus is separate from Howard's undergrad campus. Mm-hmm. So you're not really in the mix of 
being around like in the fraternities and all that kind of stuff. That's college days. So I'm Hampton all day. Okay, there we go. H U H U. Um, you you've done some TV, obviously, with the Money Power Respect. You also been uh, on Love and Hip Hop. You yeah. know, as um. What um like a confidant to Stevie J like a business yeah 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 I, I represent Stevie I handle him and Stevie actually pause, pause to handle him yeah yeah nah Stevie's my man we've been down since Stevie Stevie sold is, is responsible and connected to over hundred million records with five Grammys it's crazy right so you know, you know what's so crazy I guarantee you that the guy plays seventeen no but hold up hold up I guarantee you. That the people watching Love and Hip Hop, I would say 50-60% of them only know him from Love and Hip Hop. Have no fucking idea what this guy has done in the music industry. Yeah, they're about to know because yeah. we're about to turn this sucker up and then start putting out music under his new brand that we're basically getting ready to do. But You, you and him have been um, have a great relationship. For years I've, I've known you. Yeah. And you had a great relationship with him for years. Yeah. What, what's your thoughts of Stevie as a person? Uh, he, he Stevie is probably one of the most... He's a gentleman, but he's one of the most mannerable guys. When a person has manners, like, you watch how he he treats a woman. Like, you can go out and he holds the door for everybody. Mm. He, it's a certain way that you've been raised that there's a level of respect that he deals with. And most people get a different perception from him of because of the way he acts with, you know, his relationships and his relation, personal relationships. And they say, oh, yeah, he's a dog. He's doing this, whatever. But he's honest. You know, he's, one thing about it, he's not, he's, he's just telling his lifestyle. You got to say, him and I lived in the same building. Mm. And this is in my single days, in the wild days of the industry. We lived in the same building. This is when he was dating Eve. Okay. And then. Who, Eve? Yeah, he was dating okay. Eve. So we, but we lived in the same building. So our shenanigans go back to then. And one thing I can say about Steve, when I first met him, it was Puff who referred him to me. Really? Puff sent him to re Reggie and I. We went to the studio to meet him. And he was sitting in the corner. And he was like, you know, I just want to make music. I'm not into this partying. You know, I don't do that, all that stuff. I just want to focus on music. Then he called me the next day and said, hey, I'm not going to be able to use you because I was recommended by my father to use another firm. But I want to pay you. Could you come by the studio? And gave me money, paid me. And I never had did any work for him. Really? Yeah. And I was like, yo, that was really like, you know, he's like, I feel like I wasted your time. Come by and get some money. And he paid me. Let me tell you something. Not many people would do that type of shit. Not at all. That's an honorable thing to do. Yeah. So, we, so we've so we been cool and we've had our ups and downs. He's like a, because he's younger a brother. than me. Yeah. He's like younger a brother. younger brother. Sometimes he gets on, you know, gets on my nerves and we get into it. We fall out and, and whatever. But that's the growing pains. But at the end of the day, there's certain people that I came up with, that it's always going to be like that. Can you give us some tips on negotiations, maybe for somebody coming up that wants to learn some, not all your sauce, don't give all your sauce away, but is there like a tip you have on a negotiation that somebody could use, an aspiring lawyer right now? Yeah, well, I, 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 you know, I wrote this book called Wood Chips, right? Okay, Wood Chips. Yeah. Wood Chips is based on being an entrepreneur, but a lot of what's in there is um, the power to use certain things, the power to listen. For example, um, you know, I remember, and it's, it's a, I share a little bit of this in the book, is where I used to, I represented a, a legendary boxing promoter who's rest in peace, my man Butch Lewis. And Butch, he told me a story. He said, listen, we were actually walking in an elevator. We just came out of walking on a deal, and I started talking. 
and he told me to shut up. And then I'm like, so I'm quiet and get out the elevator. He said, listen, don't you ever talk on an elevator again because you never know who's listening and paying attention. Mm. And he shared a story with me how years before that, he was years in the past, he was doing a deal and the he was got in, he went out to take a smoke a cigarette and two guys was outside smoking a cigarette too. And they said basically, told him like, yeah, they working on that deal upstairs. I said, I think they're going to close it at this number. You know, I think they should have probably got a couple of more million dollars on the table had they been listening. They had no idea that he was the one up there negotiating. He went back up there and basically got the, all the money that they were talking back back on the table. So he said, never discuss anything. And I use that when I say the power to listen. Another thing I always tell people is that, you know, you know, you could be the best running back, but mm. without an offensive line blocking for you, you're not shit. So your team is what makes you win. So it's like going into surgery, right? If you go into a situation, you want to basically make sure your surgeon's not doing the surgery by himself. There's an anesthesiologist, there's nurses, there's people who do the checkpoints, all the various things that are in play to get a deal done. So make sure if you're getting into a situation and you do not have the wherewithal to get a deal done, don't try to do that deal on your own. You One, you're going to lose your client, right? And two, you're going to not maximize, you, 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 you count pennies. So always put your money in numbers versus in percentages. Mm. Because, you know, people get caught up. You know, I want 12%. I want 10%. Well, do the math first. Mm. What is that? What's the difference in that? They make You make a million dollars and they decide to pay you 15% or they pay you 10%. You know, and you arguing over the percentages, but when you do the math, what are the numbers? Mm. Okay, yeah, you save fifty thousand dollars, but you you got the deal done. You know what I mean? And you still walked away with nine hundred thousand, nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So I try to give them real life examples, but from an entrepreneurial standpoint, and every deal is different. So anytime someone says to me, "Oh, this every this is how we do business. We don't change anything. This is every every deal can be changed." You know, there's certain ways you got to get it done, but you got to know who you're talking to, who has the power to get that deal done. And 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 also you always negotiate. This is a tip for them. When you send out, you make them as best as you can put that deal numbers on the table first, because that becomes your floor. When somebody says, send me a proposal, that becomes your ceiling. Yeah. So I mean, so you are, you can't you can't you can't you negotiating against yourself. I'm not going to negotiate against myself. Mm. I come to the table. I say, yeah, we'll make an offer. Well, they make the offer now. Okay, I know I'm not getting less than that. We going up from there. If I come with the number, you're going to start negotiating me down. Classes in session with mm-hmm. Mr. Ed Woods. Yo, I tell you one thing. I learned a lot from you today, and mm-hmm. I tell you, you know what I learned? I learned you don't talk in the elevator. Okay, <laughs> so I'm not going to talk in the elevator no more. Actually, saying that. I, 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 I want to cue some elevator music right now.
Hey, listen, Ed, you're teaching me, man. We we had to have a private conversation real quick, and yeah. you know, we played the elevator music, you know, <laughs> and, and and you know, drown us, what, drown out what we're talking about. But listen, where could the internet find you on social? What are you on? Um, um on Twitter. It, tw- everything's B and Ed Woods dot com. So B and Ed Woods. Well, so, B and Ed Woods. B E I N G E D Woods. Yeah. yeah, and that's on Instagram and Twitter. So you got the book. Right. Yeah, it's wood chips. Wood you chips get, available. All you, of them. you can get that on barnesandnobles.com, Amazon.com, and the ebook is available now too. Money, power, and respect. What's up with that? Uh, uh, I don't know what's going to happen with that. They haven't given word whether it's coming back or not. Um, you know, I'm developing shows as an executive producer, and I'm also putting together a new show uh, based around a different version of myself as this. Um, you know, with a, as a deal maker, it's a, it's a unique show. Is I think it's going to be super entertaining, and also I'm going to be doing um some uh some with the new uh sh- second season of um Leave It to Stevie. Uh, I'll be helping him develop on the show what our new project is going to be as part of the show. So what I'll about Love making... Hip Hop? Uh, some more appearances on there? Probably not. I you know that was something that was um you know unless you know he needs me to do something but you know right now that was that was spontaneous we were actually out and you know we got the and that was a real scenario situation we got the results and and I they they wanted they needed somebody to get them sure. and they came directly to me what's uh, your relationship with Mona Scott it's great you know Mona and I go back before this television stuff so you know, and I used to work for Louise, um, her, her clients with Timberland and Missy Elliott. So I've known Mona, and she managed them at the time. So I've known Mona since I started. Yeah. Um, we have a great relationship, and um, you know, we go to war, but you know, but you know, like you go to war, but we go to war in a more friendly way. Mona's a beast, though. She's not playing. You know yeah. what I mean? What do you think about people who try to say that she is, you know, basically a content creator of ratchet shit? I, you, you know, ever hear that? You ever hear yeah, people yeah, say but, that? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but they not, but they not. You know, you know, my problem with that, and somebody did this today, yesterday. Somebody made a comment on my Instagram page about how could you support this type of of, of business and whatever, whatever. And I got in their ass. Mm-hmm. I said, "Do you understand? Until you go in at major corporations, advertisers, you got major corporations that are buying ad time." Um. Viacom, all these major companies that are making money. This is a multi-million dollar business to the point where you also go at any violent movie that comes out, any hip-hop album that's calling somebody a bitch or whatever, whatever, to you take any salacious book that's ever been put on the market and then you go at their juggler, then you can say something about somebody who's... These, these people on these shows have rights. They have... Um, assets these are copyrights and there's a whole bunch of lawyers that work for Viacom who are Harvard grads and worked in they're doing the same thing they're cutting deals based on that but they want to blame a black woman for having a show and then put it all the weight on her shoulders I think it's absolutely ridiculous but then you got the, the highest viewed show who's watching it you know what I mean they've got the number one show on television and everybody else is benefiting from it, but you find the black woman and you tear, try to tear her back out. I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. So I would say when it's like when they went at me the other day, I went in on them hey, because listen. I said, "Don't you ever come at me unless you prepared to really go at me the right way." 
Well, well, listen, you know, it's important to stick up for someone in the sense of with factual substance stuff. You know, I think sometimes people just say shit out of the blue and maybe not may know all the facts of stuff that, you know, you're talking about. Because you do you understand? You do you understand how many people they hire? And she has partners. I don't hear them calling their names out. Yeah. You know, have they done the research? She's in business with Easton. Have they done the research to find out the other individuals who are in business with her? No, you're finding one person out of the many that are making the money and Viacom's making the most off of this. Why don't you call up the head of this company or the head of that company and say something? You know what I mean? Mm. It's absolutely ridiculous. Now, what I can say, if you don't like the content, don't watch it. Turn Mm. it off. Mm. Change it to something else. That's fucking easy. This is like buying a, a magazine, a porn magazine. Yeah. If you don't like porn, don't buy the magazine. But you don't. I don't see anybody finding out who did the last penthouse or the last. But I Playboy. like to look at the magazine before I buy it. Sometimes the porn one. Yeah, but you, that's what you should do. Ain't no wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? But you know, it's like if I sold sexual products. You know what I mean? You know the the the, the new Luby Doobie. Um, vibrator for girls. <laughs> Ain't nobody checking for me, arguing with me about that. We're, get, we're getting caught up in things that 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 we get, I shouldn't get caught up in. Do the math. Look at the numbers. Everybody else is making money off of these products and these artists out there. This, and you know what? How many people she employs? I mean, how many? I'm talking about you go to one of these sessions. You know, the uh, the reunion thing they had. Like, I mean, it had to be a hundred people with, with jobs. And that's not, I'm talking about marketing, promotion, mm. accounting, whatever. Jobs. Yeah. And, and and you know what? Most people complaining may not even have a job. Yeah. So don't, you know, hey, listen, I don't, listen. Anyway, listen, Ed, I really appreciate you coming through. I'm going to tell you, this was filled with gems. Filled with also for people who aspire. Like when we had Kenny Montgomery on, there was people writing now how they're, they aspire to be a lawyer and they learned a lot. I know they're going to learn a lot from this episode. You know, you... you, you I, and shout out to Kenny Montgomery. We actually went to Hampton together. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, he was a couple of years, two years this, behind me, but yeah. This, this that's wor- my man. This world is a, a short world, you know, but I will say this. For, for, first of all, I want to thank you, more importantly, not only for coming through, not only for, you know... Um, being here today, but more importantly, I want to thank you for uh, believing in me. There's plenty of times we met and you pulled me to the side and really gave me a, a, a great sense of confidence. And, you know, we still haven't really found a, a, a lick to, to get something going, but you, you, like, you always have, 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 uh, really just gave me such a lot of confidence and believe in me and, and, and let me know how uh, talented I am um, and, and that you want to, you know, you know, always trying to find something. So I appreciate that. Now you, know? you, 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 you keep a, a genuine, um, spirit that you know needs to be heard and a voice that needs to be heard because you know it's re- it's rare you find um, people who will not waver on their principles just you know or where they will waver on any principle just to just because you 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 really want to know you even told me when I was talking about getting on the show he's like let's find the right you know when the right timing and whatever Fine. sure sure you know, I'm, I'm I'm here for that and shout out to the Krabby Shack you know uh, most up for you your wife's uh, uh, in Brooklyn Krabby Shack I'm a big fan of that yeah she, um, she visit the, the Krabby Shack and crab rolls are delicious in Brooklyn and and, and and you know definitely support that more importantly check for Ed Woods being Ed Woods on all the social yeah and platforms. also they can hit me on when they hit me on um, on, Insta, uh, on Instagram directly what I do also is I consult on on Skypes 
Okay, um, nice. Yeah, so yeah, for a so, so minimal fee. So a lot of people around the country, they, they just Skype with me and we sit on a, on a thing and I'll share whatever information they need. You know, there's nothing about this industry I don't know. Um, and I say that very, very confident and cocky, but that's what it is. I Class mean, is in session. Yeah. Yo, before we go. I, I I never even asked you Wesley Snipes. How did how did that relationship come about, man? Wesley Snipes um, is part of what is our internal crew, so which is made up of a unique bunch of guys that Butch Lewis put together: um, Judge Mathis, uh, Denzel, Leon, um, Leon Spinks. It's a whole bunch of us, mm. and we all came together and we had this thing. We get together and have meetings and talk about things in karate and things that we can do together and whatever. And Wes and I built a great relationship and shout out to Wes. I just actually, he just did a great book situation. that's going to be coming out um, on, on a storyline that that's a really incredible story on um, demigods and whatever, and actually have a movie that I'm a co-executive producer with um, D-Dot with him. Really? Yeah, called Arson, yeah. Listen, listen, too too many things Ed is doing, but check for him. And like I said, this is definitely a lot of gems in there. And that, and I think that's what um, the audience has, has grown to understand is gems and, and take something away. I never want to do something where people are I'm like, yo, just listen to my show. Mm-hmm. That's kind of corny. I want people to, like, get something from it. And this is one of those episodes. And like I said, just your career alone, there's a lot of people who may not understand just – you even you and Reggie like teaming up together and what y'all did and both of y'all uh, uh you know later on moving on and finding your own lanes and mm-hmm. and growing and I, I'm just proud of y'all most definitely. Nah, okay. I appreciate that and it's much love and like I said, anytime you need me, whatever it is, I'm here. You know, uh, I'm trying to do this. Hey, listen, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna leave uh, the internet's on this last thing. Um, I'll never forget. Uh, we may have been doing some deal or whatever. We the show was in the combat jack show was like in the mid part. Uh, maybe like three years in or whatever. And I remember you came up to uh, one of the studio one time. And we were talking about trying to get a deal with someone. I don't remember who it was. But you were like, yo, we should get, you know, we should pet do a package for a, a million dollars. And and me and like Reggie, I remember looking at you like, what the fuck, a million dollars? Like we were talking about like maybe 50000 <laughs> and and And, you know, at that time, I remember like Reggie looked at me and, and what we realized is we said, you need someone to think as crazy as that, like like as you like 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 fuck around like somebody like that's too much, and then you you get jerked. But mm-hmm. imagine someone just goes in there and and like yo they're worth this because this, and they come back with a fucking million dollars. Then all of a sudden, what do you say? But you need someone to foresee the vision of 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 doing a blockbuster deal like that, and not everybody's like that. Mm-hmm. Not that you, you, I mean, you didn't get us a million dollars. I wish, we, <laughs> we, but but what I'm saying is the mindset is something I respect. So listen, internet. Uh, Ed Woods, check from. See you next episode. Make sure you subscribe, follow us on all platforms, and I'll see you next episode. Cheer. Beautiful.